Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Abiding in Christ. All of us have our own personal experiences of Christ that impact how we see the world. Sometimes they come to us as epiphanies or mountaintop, mountaintop experiences that create a sense of awe or euphoria. They might be moments of profound peace that we find in the midst of overwhelming challenges when we finally give control of our problems to Christ. They may be related to sensing clear, specific directions that we are encouraged to take when faced with difficult decisions. These encounters can motivate us to seek out more divine experiences where we can regularly come close to God and continually taste the fruits of the Spirit. This is often described as abiding in Christ. In our passage from the Gospel of John this morning, Jesus tells his followers how to abide in him and how he can abide in them. To get a better understanding of this teaching, we need to step back to the beginning of this chapter that we read from, chapter 6. Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee and was followed by thousands of people. They were tired and hungry, and many of them were sick. When he tested his disciples by asking them where they would buy enough bread to feed the crowd of 5,000, one of them replied that they only had five loaves of barley and two fish. After directing the people to sit down, Jesus blessed the five loaves and the two fish, then distributed the food to the 5,000. When everyone was finished, he asked for the remaining fragments of food to be gathered up. And 12 baskets of food were then collected. The crowds recognized that a miracle had taken place, so they tried to make Jesus a king by force, saying that he was a great prophet that had been foretold. But Jesus withdrew to the mountain so that they could not find him. Again, Jesus and his disciples crossed the sea overnight, and they were followed by the crowd the next day. When the crowd caught up to Jesus, they asked him, when did he get there? But Jesus answered them with a criticism. He tells them he knows why they're searching for him. They want a full belly. They were looking past the signs of the miracles that he had performed and were only focusing on their own gratification of their physical needs, wants, and desires. He advised them to put their energy towards searching for eternal food that feeds their souls rather than the food that is here today but gone tomorrow. Jesus found sustenance in following the will of God and was driven by spiritual hunger more than physical hunger. We see the same theme in the story of the woman at the well. Earlier in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, we read the story of Jesus sending his disciples away to buy food while he visits with the Samaritan woman at a well. He asks for water from her bucket and tells her that he has living water to offer that will gush up in those who consume it so that they will never be thirsty again. When she asks for this living water, he reveals to her that he is the Messiah, and she runs back to town, 
overwhelmed with excitement. When the disciples return with food, Jesus tells them that he has food to eat that they did not know about. Jesus explains in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Jesus speaks in metaphors throughout the Gospels, and sometimes his message was understood, many times it was not. The woman at the well seemed to understand him, but the crowds following him and his disciples as they crisscross back and forth the Sea of Galilee didn't get it. The crowds took him literally, missing the point that he was trying to make. When he told them to work for food, for the food that endures for eternal life, they asked him, what exactly is this work they were supposed to perform? Jesus replied that their task was to believe in him whom God had sent. They asked for a sign so that they could believe in him. They gave him the example of the manna that God gave the Israelites while they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jesus replied that he is the bread of life that had come down from heaven. He told them that whoever comes to him will never be hungry, and whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. Now the crowd was thoroughly confused. How could he claim to have come down from heaven when they all knew his parents were Joseph and Mary? Rather than trying to explain himself by changing his metaphor, Jesus presses forward with an even more explicit statement that generated a great deal of controversy for centuries to come. Jesus told the crowd that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. In verses 56 through 58, Jesus tells the crowd, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. This was too much for many of his followers, but Jesus did not retract his statement. He only seemed to lean into it even more by rhetorically asking them, are, they, are you offended? Of course they were offended if they took it literally. In Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, Moses declared to the Israelites that eating blood from any animal was prohibited because the blood was the, of the, the blood was in the life of the flesh. Anyone called consuming blood was to be punished by being caught off, cut off from Israel. This law is repeated in Deuteronomy, where instructions are given for sacrificing animals. The blood of the animal must not be consumed. It should be poured out on the ground. Even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, instructions are given in chapter 15 in the book of Acts to Gentile Christians to refrain from consuming blood. There was a controversy about demanding the, the Gentiles to be circumcised like the Hebrews. Eventually it was decided that they were not required to be circumcised but they were prohibited by the apostles from consuming blood. Likewise, the idea of eating human flesh would have been very offensive to anyone at that time. 
One of the reasons given for persecuting Christians in the early church was that some Romans thought they were cannibals. Romans living near Christian communities had heard of the communion rite and thought that Christians were actually consuming human flesh and blood. Taking these words from Jesus literally would have offended nearly anyone in that time and culture. But Jesus gives several hints throughout this chapter that he is speaking metaphorically. He asked them if they would believe in him if they saw him ascending to heaven, which the apostles witnessed in the Gospels of Mark This is a foretelling of a sign rather than a sign offered upon the man. He also tells them that it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that he spoke to them are spirit and life. Or perhaps another way to think of it is to consider that Jesus was talking about consuming his spirit rather than eating flesh. But that has its own complications, since it raises the question of how to consume someone's spirit or even what that means. Jesus frequently used parables and metaphors to convey his lessons. And maybe that was because it was the best way to lead people to a place that has no parallel on this earth. For many, the metaphor, excuse me, the metaphor of consuming the flesh and the blood of Christ described in this passage is a reminder of the right of communion. In communion, also known as the Great Thanksgiving or Eucharist, we come together to remember the acts of Christ, the grace of God that enables us to experience Christ, the promise of a future in God's heavenly kingdom, and the work of the Holy Spirit continually at work among us. We eat bread, representing the body of Christ, and we drink unfermented grape juice, representing the blood of Christ. In the United Methodist Church, we do not believe that the bread turns into Jesus' actual flesh, or that the juice turns into his blood. But we do believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in this life, bringing us together as the body of Christ to help bring about the kingdom of God. We also see this right as a gift from God that provides a means of grace. We are forgiven for our sin and come closer to God. By abiding in Christ and having Christ abide in us, we are closer to God from whom Jesus came. But this is just one way of abiding in Christ. Remember the answer that Jesus gave the crowds when they asked him what work they must do in order to receive the eternal food that never perishes? He told them the work of God is to believe in him whom God had sent. The teaching about abiding in Christ follows from this instruction to believe in him whom God had sent. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think this is a crucial part of the conversation. Believing in Jesus is more than making a public statement, reading the Bible, or even coming to church. These are things that help us to get closer to Jesus. But believing in Jesus is much more than that. It includes understanding who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus wants from us, and having the strength and courage 
to follow wherever he leads. This may sound impossible when you consider that understanding Jesus is akin to understanding God. But we have the consolation of the teaching that God draws us to Jesus, who can reveal these things to us. Jesus teaches us in verse 40 that no one can come to him unless they are drawn by the Father who sent him. And he will raise that person up on the last day. Therefore, believing in Jesus is not something we can do on our own. It is rather God's grace that we are given this opportunity to abide with Jesus. Also, from this passage, we see that believing in Jesus is analogous to abiding in Jesus. This implies that believing in Jesus means more than thinking that he had some good ideas or recognizing that he was impactful in the world. It means having a deep, heartfelt conviction that his teachings represent the ultimate truth, that the best course of action is not to conform to the norms of society, but to serve as a catalyst for the transformation of the world. That he promises that he makes the promises that he makes to accompany us on our journey through life in every pit that we fall in or every mountaintop we climb. He will be there with us. Such deep understanding only comes from God. But there are things that we can do to help us abide in Christ. Like planting a garden, we don't make the plants grow, but we can till the soil and water the ground to facilitate that growth. By practicing spiritual disciplines like participating in worship, praying, meditating, reading scripture, taking communion, and serving others, we prepare the spiritual ground of our being so that God can help us grow as we grow in our faith, we will have opportunities arise that move us deeper into our relationship with Christ, and we should take them. By accepting the gifts God gives us to abide more deeply in Christ, we come closer to experiencing the mind of Christ and can use them to help others around us also grow deeper in Christ. Experiencing Christ firsthand is profoundly gratifying. There's no direct parallel on earth to this experience. So Jesus used metaphors of food and drink that point to the deep internalization of his nature that's needed for us to be satiated in our own lives. By fostering our relationship with Christ, God will draw us closer, enabling us to have those deep experiences where our faith and trust grow stronger and our life is more fulfilling. Although we're not promised an easy life, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians that it will be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Therefore, practice those spiritual disciplines that strengthen your belief in the one Christ whom God had sent so that you can abide in Christ and he can abide in you. Amen.